This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And it's a privilege to welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast, Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease and the Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, as well as the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Offit is the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. He's the author of nine books, including most recently, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. And most notably, he is a member of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee. Paul, welcome back to Open Pediatrics. Thank you. My pleasure. You and I spoke in October, and so much has happened. When we last left it, the FDA advisory, Vaccine Advisory Committee was about to review the data presented by Pfizer on their phase three study of five to 11-year-olds and, their, and the vaccine study they did in that age group. Could you tell us what were the salient features of the data that you found from what was presented to you in the five to 11-year-old age group? And in particular, it still surprises me a little bit that it arrived so promptly. I thought that because the risk-benefit profile is so different in this age group, it would take a long time to do that study. But could you tell us what were the salient features that you all wrestled with when you reviewed these data? Well, first, do we need a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds? I mean, when the virus first rolled into this country uh, last January, the thinking at the time was children get infected less frequently, and when they're infected, they're infected less severely, which is still true. But the question is, what is the burden of disease in that age group? So a few things. One is that when the virus first came into this country, fewer than 3% of the infections were detected in children. Now it's more than 25%. Second is in the 5 to 11-year-old age group, there are, have been about 80, and then at the end of October, about 8,300 hospital admissions, one-third of which resulted in an intensive care unit admission, one-third of whom were hospitalized, um, had no known comorbidities, and there were about 100 deaths in that age group. So it, it compares similarly to other viruses for which we have vaccines, like influenza, rotavirus, chickenpox, et cetera. So I think the burden of disease was significant enough, obviously, to warrant a vaccine. Then the second question is, did we know enough to recommend it? So it was a roughly a 2,400-child study, 1,600 got vaccine, 800 got placebo, so two-to-one vaccine to placebo. There were 16 cases of COVID in the placebo group, three in the vaccine group for a vaccine efficacy of about 91%, which is excellent. And so the, the fear, obviously, is, is myocarditis. I mean, we knew that in the Pfizer adult trial, it was primarily that 16 to 25-year-old who was at risk of myocarditis in the sort of roughly 1 in 20,000 range. But the risk was highest in the 16 to 17-year-old, where for U.S. data, it was about 1 in 5,000. Israeli data, 1 in 7,500. That's, you know, not trivial. So we were reassured by the fact that myocarditis in the 12 to 15-year-old, at least in Israel, where, where there's much more experience, was not exponentially higher than it was seen in the, in the 16 to 17-year-old. It was actually seemed to be lower. And so that was reassuring. Plus the five to 11 year old gets a third of the dose, you know, gets 10 micrograms per dose, not 30. So I think with all that, we felt comfortable recommending that vaccine. But I would say that, that we hold, even though it's a pandemic, even though this is approved under emergency use authorization, I think everybody on that committee still holds the vaccine to the same standard they would for any vaccine, which is 
would we give this vaccine to our own children? Then and only then would we vote yes. And could I ask, do you get ongoing data regarding adverse side effects, or does that come separately to you later? So in other words, have you heard any formal feedback on adverse side effects to the EUA for the 5 to 11-year-old to get the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, so that's usually generated by the CDC and presented at ACIP meetings. So, so we do certainly all listen into those meetings to see what's, what's going on. But so far, I haven't heard anything about an increased risk for myocarditis in that age group. And before we leave this topic, do you hazard any uh, estimate as to when to exp- you might see data on the effectiveness in the current trial of those under five years of age? Don't know. Uh, it's this, obviously the six-month to five-year-old study is being currently done. I know that we have dates set aside in January and dates set aside in February. There are no dates set aside in December. So if we were to hear those about those data, it wouldn't be till January or February. And again, that's a Pfizer phase three that's going on six months to five years, obviously with the dose reduced. Right. So can we move now on to the myocarditis question? And you alluded to that. As you know, we are recording this on December 8th of 2021. And just a few days ago, Pfizer asked uh, federal regulators to authorize a booster shot of its coronavirus vaccine for 16 and 17-year-olds, but not 12 to 15-year-olds and obviously presumptively because of the myocarditis spheres. What are your thoughts about that? Asking for a booster at 16 to 17-year-olds, not the 12 to 15-year-olds. And, and you know, is, is a booster needed in that group? Now, we haven't talked about the r- latest variant yet, but is a booster so needed that you should slice up that cohort and say, let's get the 16 and 17-year-olds approved for a booster, even though there is some increased risk, perhaps, of myocarditis? Well, so the question is, what's the goal of this vaccine? If the goal of this vaccine is to prevent serious illness, then two doses work. Now, I would say that where clearly a booster is of value is in someone who's greater than 65. Obviously, we have a three-dose recommendation for everybody who's immune compromised. I think also a booster dose is of value for residents of long-term care facilities. And then you could make the argument, although there's no data really that support this, to give a booster for those over 50 who have high-risk medical conditions. I don't see why healthy young people need a booster. I mean, as the data that we have right now are the two doses of mRNA-containing vaccine continues to provide excellent high-level protection against serious illness, meaning the kind of illness that causes you to go to the doctor, go to the hospital, go to the ICU. That hasn't waned. So if, on the other hand, the, the goal of this vaccine is to prevent any symptomatic infection, then you do get at least a somewhat of a boost, obviously, in neutralizing antibodies, which will last for three months, six months, nine months. I guess we'll see to protect against mild illness. But that is holding this vaccine to a standard that, to which we hold no other mucosal vaccine. I mean, influenza vaccines, rotavirus vaccines, whooping cough vaccines are not great at protecting against mild or asymptomatic infection. I think, frankly, the communications error that was made that was the biggest one associated with the, uh, the Provincetown outbreak around July 4th. What happened then was thousands of men get together, celebrate July 4th. There was an outbreak of COVID. So 346 people who had been vaccinated, completely fully vaccinated, developed COVID. Four were hospitalized. Those four cases, 1.2% of those who were uh, infected, those were breakthrough illnesses. Unfortunately, we labeled mild and asymptomatic infections breakthrough illnesses. I, that's not a breakthrough. That's a victory. I mean, that's what you want from a vaccine. So I think this has really led people astray, and now they see that, that, that this vaccine is supposed to protect against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, which is not going to happen over time. And 
So it's uh, it's been hard to watch. Well, just to follow up on that, and I, you know, I, I asked you this uh, a few weeks ago, but was it? And I'm going to use the word a mistake. In my respect, was it a mistake to define efficacy as effectively preventing infection, as you just said, as opposed to? And of course, that's as you just said, that's so different than how we consider influenza. Influenza victory if it keeps you out of the hospital, off off a nice off a ventilator, and and you don't die. Then that was a great influenza vaccine for that season. But I think the public's legitimately confused because, the, you know, I don't want to put this on the doorstep of the vaccine makers, but efficacy, as you well know, is defined as, you know, are you infectious and symptomatic? Well, I, th- I think where we were seduced was during the phase three studies that were presented in December. So Pfizer does a 40,000 person study, Moderna, a 30,000 person study. I mean, the size of those studies was typical of any pediatric or adult vaccine trial, and the safety follow-up was typical. What wasn't typical was efficacy follow-up, which was three months. That was a three-month study. You know, the rotavirus vaccine trials were four-year studies. The HPV vaccine trials were seven-year studies. This was a three-month study. So you had, everybody had recently just gotten their second dose, so neutralizing antibodies were high. So protection against mildly symptomatic illness was 95%. That is no way that was going to last. I mean, neutralizing antibodies had to decline. Protection against mild illness had to decline. Now, another thing that came with that Provincetown outbreak that was another sort of a misleading statement was the notion that if you got vaccinated and you had a mildly symptomatic infection, or if you weren't vaccinated and you had a mildly symptomatic infection, you were just as contagious in both those situations. That's not true. If you're vaccinated and you have mild symptoms, you will shed less virus for a, a shorter period of time. So there is less contagiousness associated with vaccination. Again, imagine if we got PCR testing on everybody looking for influenza who got an influenza vaccine. I mean, that vaccine doesn't protect against mild or asymptomatic infection. And worse, that everyone who was, let's say, PCR positive for flu, despite being vaccinated, had to be quarantined or isolated. Uh, We wouldn't be working anymore. Well, obviously, this is one of the lessons learned from this experience. And you are doing so many interviews. I know you're, you're trying to set this straight for so many both health professionals as well as the public. Before we leave this topic, a few more questions. First, what is the presumptive mechanism of myocarditis in these under 25-year-olds? Is it known yet? Not known. I mean, there, there's, it's interesting. It is a second-dose phenomenon and it is largely a young male phenomenon. So I think it is associated with that booster. It, it, is, it is immunologically mediated. It has nothing to do, obviously, I think, you know, with what we typically think of as myocarditis. Viral myocarditis, for example, Coxsackie-induced myocarditis, the virus reproduces itself in cardiac muscle cells. That's, that's not true here because you're just given a vaccine. I think there is either a, a certain cytokine or chemokine profile or inflammatory mediator profile that is associated with transient, short-lived, relatively mild myocarditis. I wish we had a different word for it because when we, at least as, as physicians, when we think of the word myocarditis, we think of viral myocarditis where often you go to the intensive care unit. And, you know, whatever, 49% of the time you end up with heart transplants. So that's a very different phenomenon. There was one fatality in Israel associated with myocarditis, but that's, that's all I've seen. And, and also know that SARS-CoV-2, COVID also is associated with myocarditis. There was one study in JAMA Cardiology looking at athletes, Big Ten conference. Everybody who got, had COVID was given a, an MRI, cardiac MRI. And about 2.5% had evidence of myocarditis, two-thirds of which was asymptomatic. And then obviously there's MIS-C, this multisystem inflammatory disease of children, where depending on which review you look at, between 50 and 75% of children will have myocarditis. And that is more severe than that associated with vaccination. 
Now, for the next question, let me remind the audience that um, although you are a very prominent member of the um, United States Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee, you're not here speaking formally for that. So with that as a preamble, could I ask you, what do you think of the strategy? I believe it's being done in several European countries where they're only giving one dose of the vaccine in this age group, uh, perhaps less than 25, in order to mitigate the risk of uh, myocarditis. What What do you think of that strategy? I think it's a bad idea. I mean, if you look at the, the, the two dose versus one dose for mRNA, you induce much higher frequencies of memory cells after the second dose than after the first dose. So I think what you've done then is you've um, taken a small and arguably largely theoretical risk and used that to replace what is the real risk of myocarditis associated either with MIS-C or with being uh, infected by uh, wild type virus. So I think it's a terrible idea. Actually, when, when we in this country first started rolling out the vaccine in December, I know there were a number of voices in the media that were saying, let's just get as many first doses out there as possible. And then later, when more vaccine is available, we'll get a second dose. And I think that sent the inadvertent message that one dose might be enough. And it's not enough. So I think that's a terrible idea. Now, this next question is somewhat in the same category. You're not answering officially in any of the hats that you wear. But related to this, you know, as you know, in some countries in England, what they implemented as a vaccine strategy was different than any of the phase three studies that were presented to the regulators. And in that case, what they did was they um, increased the interval between the first and the second dose. What do you think of that? It seems to be my observation is in our country, not just your committee, the Vaccine Advisory Committee of the FDA, but the CDC as well, uh, NIH, I, I think we've been sticking more to this is what we know from the science that was presented to us. And, and staying in that lane, whereas clearly what they did in uh, England in that case was not radical. Decades of immunology would say, well, that's, you know, the priming dose coming later might be a smart thing to do. So what do you think of that when the public health implementation of a vaccine strategy is different than the justification that was brought to them by the phase three study of that vaccine? Right. You like to stick with what you know. When you, when you go away from what you know, the, the problems can occur. I think with, with the so-called Chadox-1 vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the vectored virus vaccine that was used primarily in, in the United Kingdom at the time of launch. Um, so that's a um, you know, replication-defective simian adenovirus. And the thinking, I think, was when the trials were initially done, that if you, if you then maybe delay you know, the second dose even longer, that'll give a, a period of time then where you're, you're neutralizing antibodies just against the vector will decrease and then allow the vector to, you know, to have a greater impact if you wait longer. But again, those are the kind of things that you do phase one trials for, not only to determine the dose, but to determine the dosing interval. And they had made that determination. And so I, I didn't like that idea at all, that, that, that it just doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's what they chose to do. I don't think it mattered. I mean, I think that there's a general rule in, in the world of vaccines, you can just pick up where you left off so that you ended up waiting a period of time there, I don't think made much of a difference. But again, that's why you do the phase one study. Now, again, as we're recording this, it's December 8th, and around the world, the major concern is about the Omicron variant. And before I ask you about that, just to finish the vaccine story, and now maybe the antiviral story before we go there. As you know, and this is not your committee, again, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee does not address or does not comment on, and it's not your domain, on the uh, oral COVID-19 antivirals. But nonetheless, you're well aware that Pfizer is about to present to a similar FDA committee uh, a request for an EUA on their Paxlovid oral 
COVID-19 antiviral. Uh, and if it holds true, their interim analysis of some 1,200 patients showed that administration of this oral antiviral within three days of symptoms prevented hospitalization and death in nearly 90%, 89% of those who, again, received it within three days of symptoms. That would seem to be a game changer if that holds true. Now, that didn't hold true, as we know, for the Merck oral vaccine. Uh, their preliminary analysis was more promising than the final data that they presented to your associated FDA advisory committee. But if the uh, 89% efficacy of that oral Pfizer Paxlovid antiviral holds true, is that a game changer? Yeah, well, I, th I think vaccines actually were the game changer <laughs> in terms of like if you believe, um, as Ben Franklin said, that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, you know, I'm at Penn, so you're supposed to bring up a Ben Franklin quote at least some point during your talk. But, um, you know, I think the trick here, when you're infected with, with SARS-CoV-2, initially, you know, the virus reproduces itself hundreds of times, thousands of times, thousands and thousands of times, and then your immune system kicks in. And, and with that, you know, whether it's antibody responses or cytotoxic T-cell responses, the helper cell responses and all the inflammatory mediators, the replication starts to decrease. And, and then the immune system becomes really the central driver of pathogenesis. So when kids are in, children are in our hospital, then the key therapies become dexamethasone, a steroid, or something like a baricitinib, which is a JAK2 inhibitor, you know, again, something that's immunosuppressive. And, and remdesivir, you know, antivirals, or monoclonal antibodies, which are going to be, again, antiviral, have no role. And so the trick here, I think, with antivirals is to treat early. And, but it's always better to prevent than to treat, uh, So because treating is leakier. I think it's of value. Hopefully, it'll be used correctly, which is to say very early in infection. Then we'll see. Yeah, and I was not very precise by using that term game changer, because obviously, as you noted, the real game changer is the vaccines, uh, but rather as a supplement. But now let me ask you the, the converse of that. You know, obviously, if people think that this is a game changer, I'm sure the concern that you all would have is that this is going to inhibit people from getting vaccine, which is the game changer. Right. And, and people may think exactly that. You know what? I don't want to get a needle. You know, I, I'm a little worried that it's going to, you know, change my fertility, affect DNA. But people are much more comfortable taking drugs. I think they are very comfortable, even drugs that don't work. So, yeah, I, I, I do worry about that, that this could inhibit further the real issue with getting on top of this pandemic, which is vaccinating the unvaccinated, which I guess has always been true, but now it's vaccinating the willfully unvaccinated. And I think that's the challenge. And I think that in many ways, to sort of focus on booster dosing has been largely a detour. It's not hard to get people who've already gotten two doses to get another dose. I think you could probably get them to get five more doses. They're in. The trick is trying to get people who are unvaccinated to get vaccinated. I mean, I just came off a week on service. You know, and, and we had a, a, a bad week this week in terms of, of COVID admissions. We saw a real surge in COVID admissions. And all those children, um, you know, at least those who were over five, none of them were vaccinated. Their parents weren't vaccinated. That's the problem. And we're having the same experience here in the Northeast. So finally, Omicron variant. It's not a surprise, of course, that variants have and will and continue to emerge. Take us through your thoughts on this Omicron variant. Obviously, there's a number of places to start, but let me begin by asking you this. The way it was uh, handled by the world, I think we could, a lesson to learn that the, uh, the people who did the hard work and identified and sent out the alert are the recipients some, of some strict lockdowns on travel to their country, et cetera. And that's obviously not ideal uh, public health response and sends the wrong message. But can you take us through your thoughts? You weren't surprised to see the variant. We've had variants already. We're on our sixth or seventh cycle of, you know, the circulating variant. 
What are your thoughts on Omicron? What do we know? How did, in retrospect, as it emerged, how did we share data about it? How concerned about are, are you to this day? And then finally, even a few hours ago, the Pfizer CEO is releasing information. So we're not even in an age of preprint servers anymore. We've backed it up to the CEO of the vaccine maker who's releasing data. There's a lot there, Paul, but your thoughts on Omicron. So this is a bat coronavirus that is trying to adapt itself to the human population. By adapt, what I mean is they, they, this is a single strand in RNA virus that will continue to create mutations, and some of those mutations will serve as a fitness advantage to the virus to allow it to be more transmissible. And so the first virus that raised its head, uh, the, the Wuhan strain, was the virus to which all vaccines are made. All vaccines are made to prevent the Wuhan strain. But that's not the virus that left China. The virus that left China was the first variant, the so-called D614G variant, which swept across Asia, swept across Europe, swept across the United States, killed a couple hundred thousand people here, until it was replaced by the more contagious alpha variant, which also swept across those regions until it was replaced by the more, even more contagious delta variant. And now we have the Omicron variant, which is, is uh, from all, for all purposes, at least from the data you can see, even more contagious, which is to say that a lesser amount of virus is able to cause disease, which is to say you need a lesser amount of contact with somebody who's shedding that virus in order to get infected. The critical question is, does the current vaccine, two doses of the current vaccine, protect you against serious illness? Remembering the two doses of, let's say, the mRNA vaccines has protected you against serious illness right up to the present time for all three of the variants? And I think the, the answer to that question is very, very likely to be yes. Begging the question, why did basically the administration use Omicron as a reason to then recommend a vaccine for everybody over 18 years of age? It is certainly true that, it, at least from the original Pfizer data, and there's other data that's been generated in Germany and South, South Africa and other places, that the antibody response that you generate following two doses of an mRNA vaccine, while it, you can get high levels of neutralizing antibodies to the original variant, say the D614G variant, you have a lesser response to the Omicron variant, but with a third dose, you have a boost in that response so that you now have a greater level of neutralizing antibodies. But that too fades, and according to one study in Germany, it can fade within a matter of three months. So the, the thing we need to decide again with this vaccine is what is the goal of this vaccine? If the goal of the vaccine is preventing serious illness, I think you were going to find that two doses of an mRNA vaccine is excellent preventing, at preventing serious illness from Omicron. And also, there are some data to suggest that this may be a less virulent virus, because remember, that's also the goal of, of any viruses that's adapting to growth in people. I mean, the, the, it's never to the advantage of the virus to be more virulent. I mean, the virus, if it kills you, then it can't continue to reproduce itself or continue to spread. So the perfect virus is rhinovirus, right? It's highly contagious, but doesn't, isn't uh, fatal. And, and that's in some ways what all these viruses at some level want to be. You know, we have, this is really the, the ninth strain, if you will, of, or ninth type of coronaviruses that's now infecting humans. There are four strains of human coronavirus that circulate every year in the United States, primarily a winter virus, first identified in the 60s, no doubt they were there before that. But, you know, they, they don't cause a lot of severe disease. Whereas if you look at, for example, at SARS-1 or MERS, those really had mostly moderate and severe disease. Therefore, they were very easily isolated. So that wasn't the, an advantage to that virus. The, the advantage of this virus is that there's a lot of asymptomatic spread, and it would be an even greater advantage to the virus to be less virulent. We'll see how this plays out. I just wish it hadn't been used as a reason to give that third dose, because I don't think that the thinking behind that was made clear. If the reason to give that this as a third dose is because we want to try and reduce transmission by getting 
people who are already vaccinated to third dose. That may reduce some transmission somewhat. Whether that'll have any kind of impact on this pandemic, we'll see, because obviously the only way we're going to have an impact on this pandemic is to vaccinate the unvaccinated, and we've sort of hit a wall. So, Paul, that was a wonderful kind of natural history of, of viruses. So just to you know, emphasize it or ask it again, so what you're saying is you would expect if this virus follows natural selection, as all viruses would want to do, as you said, then unlike the, uh, uh, or the first SARS-CoV, which was so lethal in Hong Kong and Toronto, that you would expect that this, as it continues to evolve and variants continue to emerge, that it'll become more transmissible, but most likely far less lethal. And I'm hesitant to ask you on the degree of certainty, but most likely that will be the evolution of this virus? If the virus continues to exercise the fitness that it has been exercising, yes. So, so I think this will be an endemic virus, it would be my guess, over time, and will join the ranks of the four uh, human coronaviruses. And, and hopefully that happens where it's less virulent, because what this virus does that the other viruses don't do is they cause you to make an inflammatory response to your own blood vessels, things like multi-system inflammatory disease of children. I mean, that's really not a consequence of the other human coronaviruses. So that's what makes this virus so heinous. So hopefully it will get less heinous. But I think we're going to have to have a highly protected population for years, if not decades. I think that, that this will become a routine childhood vaccine because children grow up. And, and all the evidence, the good news on this is all the evidence is that, that protection against serious disease is likely long-lived. I mean, I would imagine years and, and perhaps longer. So you, I don't think we're going to need to continue to vaccinate which is why this booster story has been frustrating for me, because I don't think we've educated the public as to why there's such a compelling need for a booster dose. Obviously, the older people, the elderly, long-term care residents need a booster dose. That group needs a booster dose. In the last few minutes, as you know, in the last week, the United States Press Secretary Jen Psaki at the White House has been criticized when it was suggested that perhaps the federal government as a public health response should be making available to you know, every American household antigen tests so that people could continue to assess whether they are um, carrying the virus and therefore potentially infectious to someone else. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a great idea. I, I think we should do it. My sister just visited me from London a few weeks ago, and she brought with her a whole packet of antigen tests that were provided free to her by her government. And you know, I'm jealous. I wish we had the same opportunity here. So the goal Dr. Paul Offit is uh, ideally uh, we get as much of the population, certainly the vulnerable vaccinated, but as much of the population vaccinated. But even if we do, we're living with uh, perhaps uh, antigen tests as well in the next several years so that we know when we're infectious. That would be great. And the advantage of the antigen test is it's detecting viral protein. So it's much more of a closer correlate to shedding infectious viruses compared to the PCR test was a genome test. And you can be PCR positive for months after you're no longer shedding infectious virus. So it's, I think it's in many ways the better test. Well, uh, Dr. Paul Offit, I know you're extremely busy uh, trying to explain all this to uh, so many around the world. You've been very generous with your time today. And Paul, every time I think that I won't be asking you for another interview, something else happens. So, so this time, I hope I won't be writing you for, let's call it 12 months. <laughs> Sounds good. That's a deal. All right. Nice to see you, and thank you for being with Open Pediatrics today. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.